0: Alright folks, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. In honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand with me. This is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. According to Shigonath, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, I, I do fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timim, from the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light raised flash from his hand and there he veiled his power before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels he stood and measured the earth he looked and shook the nations that the eternal mountains were scattered the everlasting hills sank low his were the everlasting ways i saw the tents of cushion and affliction the curtains of the land of midian did tremble was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? O your indignation against or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on and gave the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the Lord for the day of trouble to come upon those who invaded us. And so though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut from the fold, though there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places the choir master with stringed instruments let's pray Father. We thank you for your word ask now lord that uh, this this ancient psalm song prayer uh, lord all all of all of that at once I, I pray father that these words that sound so kind of odd to us in our day maybe not familiar terms maybe not familiar background material here that that uh, we are experiencing in our own lives. And yet the truths here uh, are just as profound and just as promising and just as amazing as if we were hearing this in our own day. So I, I pray that we would hear this in our own day and that we would make, build that bridge, Father, that uh, the words of Habakkuk would have deep, powerful uh, meaning in, in our lives on this day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, this week, I was thinking about the Roman Empire. Is that not funny to anybody? I guess y'all don't get there, There's Never mind. Never mind. Anybody on TikTok? Probably not. So this week I was thinking about the Roman Empire, as, as I often do, and I was thinking about the level of trials that, that, that the Jews must have experienced in first century Jerusalem. What it would have been like to have been alive to be Jewish in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And I don't know if you can even begin to kind of imagine uh, what was going on in the culture and and how you would have felt about it, but just try to imagine living in in a nation and a city engulfed with political turmoil. Uh, Just just unrest. Uh, a, A place where People were separated by tribalism. You had all these different kinds of groups of people. None of them liked one another. You had Pharisees. You had Sadducees. You had the Essenes. You had Romans. You had Jews. You had Gentiles. You had proselytes. You had zealots. You had collaborators. There was so much division. So much anger. So much contempt in the air. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Can you imagine living in a place where the the streets were uh, filled with violence? Uh, Imagine the thought that that you could literally go do just a normal activity, just just take your family to the market, and there might be the possibility that you wouldn't make it home imagine that kind of stress imagine a place where you really didn't trust anybody you couldn't trust anybody you had the government and they were taxing you right and left for everything right inflation was completely out of control and on top of that it wasn't just the government when you went to the temple to try to sacrifice something the exchange rate uh, for whatever animal you were trying to bring in to sacrifice was astronomical it was all shady can you even imagine what that would have been like of course we can imagine it right we're, we're living in it we're living in it uh, not much has changed we have, have different names for our tribes and we have more advanced ways of Spreading our vitriol and hatred towards others. But it's basically the same song that we've been singing for over 2,000 plus years now. It was in that setting in Jesus' day that he said, In this world, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, trouble when he says in this world you will have trouble, I I don't think the word trouble actually does justice to the translation of the Greek word that Jesus used. Trouble sounds like, you know, when I have a flat tire or uh, I'm in a traffic jam when I'm in a hurry, you know. This is so troublesome. But the word Jesus used for trouble is, is perhaps better translated as tribulation, as affliction. As distress, in this world you will have affliction. You will suffer. You will go through distress. That's a much more uh, painful warning than the occasional annoyance of a little trouble now and then. And notice that he says, in this world you will have trouble. He doesn't say you might have trouble. There is a possibility that you will. No, he says it rather rather emphatically. You will, it is a certainty, have trouble. You will have affliction. You will have distress. This is a deep-seated kind of suffering that he tells us that we're going to have. And I want you to notice who he says it to. He, he said it to his disciples, right? He says it to his, his called out ones, his chosen ones, his best friends on earth. That's who he said it to. Those that Jesus loved. Those whose close proximity of to Jesus apparently would not relieve their suffering. He said, this will happen to you. He didn't say it might happen to you. And he said it to his disciples. He never had any kind of exemption clause where he says, however, if you have enough faith, you will not be troubled. No, he says it to his own disciples, his closest circle of friends. In fact, he basically says, in this world, because of me, you will have trouble, and suffering. To get to heaven, we have to follow Jesus through a war zone before we get there. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous in the book of Psalms. Well, Paul Tripp, the Christian psychologist, tells us that uh, suffering, we're all going to have it, and that suffering is never neutral. It's never Neutral. What he means by that, and here's what he says specifically, quote, Here's what every sufferer needs to understand. You never just suffer the thing that you are suffering, but you always also suffer that way that you are suffering that thing. <laughs> of course. In other words, we, we are always experiencing our suffering through something. We we experience our our suffering through our experiences or our expectations or our assumptions or our perspectives or desires or dreams that are broken or, or intentions. We suffer how we suffer, not just what we suffer. For example, uh, two of you could receive the exact same news and yet not suffer the exact same way. Somebody may take it worse. Somebody may have a harder time. Why? Because there are experiences in your life that have created a sense of maybe previous suffering that this is more of opening a previous wound than a fresh one so it's more like that so we always experience suffering through something or to put it maybe another way our suffering is compounded and increased because we suffer in many ways unbiblically or or we suffer untheologically I'll show you what I mean. When we enter uh, suffering, we we show up. Uh, kind of the picture I have is we show up with a suitcase, right? Everywhere we go, we carry this suitcase. And so we, we when we enter into suffering, what is in the suitcase, right, could make our suffering worse or perhaps better. So if in your suitcase you are carrying bad theology then it's going to increase your suffering. For example, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you go through suffering and you say to yourself, I'm suffering because God is punishing me for my sin. Then you are compounding your suffering because now not only are you suffering the thing, but you're suffering the shame and the guilt that goes with the thing. And that's bad theology because basically it says I'm suffering for sin that Christ died for. That cannot be true for the believer because the cross is sufficient. The cross doesn't require anymore. Like we said last week, God is not mad at you. It it requires uh, my suffering along with Christ. Is that what you want to say that it wasn't sufficient his suffering of course not so so we definitely suffer the consequences of our sin right i don't want to mislead you on that right sin has a consequence but suffering the natural consequence of our sin is not the same thing as god punishing us for it when jesus christ has already been punished for it other things in our suitcase that we bring into our suffering uh, maybe things like pride or unrealistic expectations right or or uh just a self focus things that we bring into the situation that actually make the situation the suffering worse so so, so the fact of the matter is suffering Uh, doesn't so much change our hearts as it exposes what's already in them, what's been there all along. And so we will never see the reality of what's in our heart in a lot of situations until we suffer. And if God's intention is to sanctify us, right, In suffering, he's going to use suffering not as a form of punishing his sons and daughters, but to reveal to us something dangerous within us, something dangerous in our hearts. He he is revealing a disease, if you will, so that it can be healed. Something that is damaging, more damaging to our souls than the suffering will ever be. In our lives, Jesus said it uh, kind of like this. He said it's it's like a gardener uh, pruning a vine. Now I've never really been a, a vine, but I can imagine if I was one, pruning would not be my favorite thing. Pruning is painful, right? Cuts. But the aim of the gardener is not inflicting punishment on the vine. His aim is to make it more fruitful. That's why he does it. Let's cut off everything that is keeping you from being fruitful. Let me cut off everything in your life that is preventing you from living a rich and flourishing life, the one I've designed for you. And so here's the fact. Suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable because we live in a fallen world, but it's inevitable for Christians because we have to be pruned And that's part of the sanctification process, right? So suffering is inevitable. Therefore, we should probably learn how to do it well. And there is a way to suffer well. There is a way to not add more suffering to the suffering that we're already going to experience. There is a way to carry the right things in our suitcase right theology right thinking right attitudes so Habakkuk the prophet has been informed by God uh, that God himself uh, uh, is going to bring suffering on the people of Judah God's going to raise up the Babylonians to prune Judah And, and Judah has brought this on themselves. They have brought on their, their suffering by their own sin and, and God's going to discipline them because God disciplines those he loves. And so having been informed of their future suffering Habakkuk, he kind of goes through all kinds of uh, stages that, uh, that we all face when we, when we are faced with an unknown or, or, or frightening future. He goes through denial. He goes through bargaining. He goes through lament. And finally, when we get to chapter 3, he comes to acceptance. But Habakkuk is is now, in his acceptance, about to teach us how to suffer well. So Habakkuk 3, what we have here is, is a prayer and a song... Right, we saw at the, at the beginning that this is, is a, uh, a song that is written as a prayer and then it ends with the words to the choir master. So it's a prayer song. Or we could kind of say it's, it's more like a psalm because that's what the psalms were, right? They were kind of prayer songs. And so in his prayer song, he reveals to us basically what he has in his suitcase. The, the things that, that have, are going to help him to face the suffering that he is going to endure along with the people of Judah. And what he does is he shows us how to turn worry into worship. So that's, that's what our aim is today, is to learn how to turn worry into worship. I don't know about you guys. I know the Bible says it's wrong to worry, right? But I do it a lot anyway. I worry about a lot of stuff it seems. I worry about the future, a lot of future things. Maybe uh, we all do, I guess. My worries like to show up at inconvenient times, too. It's not like I'm just going, okay, well, uh, it's almost two o'clock. I've scheduled in some worry. It just kind of shows up, you know. I might show up in the middle of the night and rob me of sleep. It might uh, cause churnings and anxiety that are robbing me of inner peace. How many of us, and I don't need to see a show of hands, but you just can answer in your own heart, but I wonder how many of us are truly confident about the future? The future of our nation? The future of uh, what our, our kids are going to endure? Uh, what our kids are going to become, the future of the world. And th- those are kind of those big looming dark clouds on the horizon. But, but you know, if you're like me, the future is a little more uh, personal. Yeah, there's all of that crazy stuff out there. You know, you hear about AI and some of these, these things that you go, my goodness, we are living in a dystopian novel, it seems. But those, those personal things, right? Will I have enough to sustain me to the end of my life financially? Will I be okay financially? Will my kids uh, be okay? What will their future be like? What is the future for them? What does the future look like for my health as we get older? I read an article uh, this week that said 70 75% of young people are frightened about the future. 75%. 50% of that 75 half of young people experience daily anxiety about the future. Half our kids in this country, every day, anxiety, thinking about tomorrow. Man, when I was a kid, I didn't worry about anything. You know, you'd take off in the morning. There were no cell phones or anything. Parents didn't know where you were. Didn't seem to matter. See you at dinner, and we would take off, and we would just go. And we did dumb stuff all day long. And somehow we survived and made it home for dinner and then went to bed and didn't worry about much of anything. It was a right of childhood to not have to worry about anything. But this generation of young people, have been robbed of that. The cultural poets of our day write songs that that express the fear and the angst of young people, like Arcade's Fire uh, song, The Age of Anxiety. And they sing at one point repeatedly, got to get this spirit out of me, this anxiety that's inside of me. So to find that Habakkuk ends with all of that bad news of what's coming, and he ends this chapter with a song, with, with, with singing, is rather unexpected. And he sings, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day and our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. We've seen this verse used uh, many times to talk about revival. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, do it again. Do it again. And it really is a great revival prayer. We even made it the theme, if you guys recall, it was the theme of our uh, theme verse of our Jubilee anniversary celebration. That's the verse. We chose. We've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. Do them in our day. But when we see that verse, that song, those lyrics, and its context of Habakkuk, it, it really becomes rather stunningly profound and amazing. In fact, the rest of the prayer song is a commentary on that opening verse. And so from Habakkuk's song now, we will discover three truths that the prophet basically unpacks here to allow him to turn worry into worship. These three truths t- teach us how to suffer well. So here they are, number one. We need to learn to recall God's faithfulness. Recall God's faithfulness there's a lot of mystery surrounding human suffering a lot of things we can't understand probably will not understand in this lifetime because god hasn't told us everything yet he said now we see kind of uh, in, in a mirror dimly then you know in the future we're going to have a better understanding we shall know and be known face to face but for now everything's fuzzy but that means that he desires for us to focus now on what we do know, on what has been revealed. So before Habakkuk looked at the future, he begins to recount the past, doesn't he? I heard about your fame. I, I stand in awe of your deeds, your pasty, what you did. So instead of looking at himself, or looking at the possibility of what is coming with his future, the first thing he does is he looks at God. He looks at God. He's thinking about the future, but he's looking at it through the lens of God. Now, if we don't do that, then the future is terrifying, isn't it? Now, we're going to end up uh, with crippling worry and anxiety if we look at our future and God's not in the picture of that. Right, You will cry out, woe is me. You will feel sorry for yourself. We will play the victim. So to look properly at God, you have to become a student of God's word. Spending time with God in his word prepares you to suffer well. It's not going to help you avoid suffering. That's inevitable, but it helps us to do it well. So God calls us, therefore, to rise above and to gaze upward. Not just simply at everything that's happening, the wind and the waves. Recalling God's faithfulness. Thinking about how he's been faithful, renews hope and trust and assurance. So he calls us to look back in order to face what's coming ahead. So God calls us to to remember first. First. Habakkuk recalls what he has read about God in the scriptures, right? He recalls faithfulness, God's faithfulness to Moses and, and God's people back in the Exodus, right? There, there's a parallel, we saw this last week, between Babylon the Babylonian captivity, and the Egyptian captivity. And so he's remembering these things, and it is in that context that he begins to recall God's faithfulness. So he's recalling God's faithfulness to his people in and during the exodus. Look at verses 3 through 11. Let's read it again. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran, the splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. The plague followed. At his heels he stood. He measured the earth. He looked. He shook the nations. With the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. Uh, his were the everlasting ways. And I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O oh Lord? Was your anger against the rivers and your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhe, The raging waters swept on and gave, the deep gave forth its voice, lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon uh, stood still in their Place, right? So, so he recalls how God uh, showed up during the Exodus, sort of like the the rising sun, the splendor of the rising sun, as it takes the darkness and then all of a sudden brings forth light. Right? He literally showed up in the Exodus in a pillar of Fire, and a cloud that led them to freedom. So he recalls that. He recalls how God brought plagues on Pharaoh and all of Egypt. He recalls how God's anger was poured out on the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers Uh, because they were turned literally into blood during the exodus and finally he recalls how god saved his people through holding back the red sea but he did not spare his wrath against the pursuing egyptians because he removed his hand of protection and the sea swept back into their place torrent of waters swept by the deep roared and lifted its waves on high he says So Habakkuk sings, God, I've heard about that. I've heard what you did. I've read your word. I've heard about these things. I've heard how you're faithful to your people. I have seen it in your word. I've heard it proclaimed by the elders. Since I was a little boy, they told these stories. And I stand in awe of the things that you did. I stand in awe of your deeds. Therefore, the things that you did, the power that you showed, do it again. Do it again. Do it in our day. That's what he's saying. God, you've shown yourself faithful and merciful. Do it again. You've shown yourself filled with mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. Your wrath back then was marked by mercy. Do it again. Do that again. Do you have... God uh, testimonies you have testimonies of God's faithfulness in your own past. I I think any of us who have followed Jesus for any length of time can look back over the span of our lives since we started following Jesus and we could all tell stories of God's faithfulness. Uh, the, The older people could tell the younger people, man we went through some trials but God was faithful. Right? You can do that, and if you haven't been following him very long, you go. I don't really have any stories like that. Well, then you have a lot to look forward to because they're coming. But for now, you can borrow the testimonies of other people. That's what Habakkuk is doing, isn't it? He's recalling God's faithfulness to Moses and to Israel, and so to see what the the, the saints of the past have have endured and suffer for the sake of Christ to see how they suffered well is very beneficial to see God's faithfulness get them through. And we say, Lord, you got them through. Do it again. Do it again. Because they went from worry to worship. Or best yet, you know, we can, we can uh, read about these experiences in Scripture as well as in history. I, I can't tell you how many times I've benefited from reading Christian biography. I, I never don't have something that I'm working through that's some biog- biography of somebody. Because they're just so beneficial to me. You see what the, the, the saints of the past, every time I think I got it bad, I read about somebody in the past history and I'm going, wow. And they endured and they suffered for the sake of Christ. And they suffered well. And, and I see God's faithfulness to them to give them the strength that they need in the moment that they need it. And I see them learning how to wor- go from worry to worship. And I go, man. And they, they build in you kind of a, a, a desire. I want, I want what they had. Think about David. Biblical example. Thinking about David, for example. Psalm 121, verse 1, he says this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We got a song that, that is based on that, right? I lift my eyes up. Where does my help come from? I lift my eyes to the hills. But if you ever... Ask the question, why does he say that he lifts his eyes to the hills? Why doesn't he say to the heavens? I lift my eyes to the hills. Why did David lift his eyes to the hills? Well, think about it, right? Think about those hills that David looked at every day. Those hills were the same hills that he spent so many difficult days in. It was in those hills that David had hidden from a crazy king by the name of Saul who was trying to kill him. It is in those hills where where David remembers hiding and sleeping in caves. He, he remembers the loneliness of being treated like a fugitive and the anxiety and the fear in those hills. He remembers laying there at night and hearing sounds around him, the sounds of jackals at night and feeling eyes looking at him in the darkness. He recalled running, literally for his life, over those those hills, being chased like a fugitive when he was supposed to be the king. And he looks to those hills and he remembers why does he look there because where does my help come from well back then my help came from the lord and so i remember i remember god's faithfulness i look to times in the past where god was faithful in the midst of my trials he remembers praying under the stars. He remembers crying out for God's rescue to come and to save him. Now his hindsight is twenty-twenty. Now he can look back and see that God was with him. He was never alone. That God was with him the entire time in those hills. And he remembers. And now faced with these new trials in his life, He looks back to the hills. He remembers God's faithfulness. And it provides for him the strength that he needs. God was faithful then. He will do it again. He will do it again. God's faithfulness will not uh, remove future suffering, but it will guarantee that he is with us and will get us through. Because he's working out everything for our good. So, number one, he recalls God's faithfulness. second thing he does is that he remembers God's sovereignty. In studying the book of Habakkuk, I, I have truly resonated with this prophet, uh, concerning, especially concerning God's sovereignty. Because Habakkuk, man, he's kind of baffled by it. I don't know if you kind of picked up on that, but he's been baffled by it, because at the same time that he's baffled by it, he's he's comforted by it. It's like, man, that's great. I don't get it. And it's, it's the same way that, that I experience God's sovereignty, right? When contemplating God's sovereignty, I usually end up with more questions than answers. I, I used to be bothered by that, by the way, because... You know, you, you kind of get, we Americans, we got to know how things work. And, uh, and when we don't have all the answers, it, it can become frustrating. People use it as an excuse. Well, I'm not going to follow God if I can't know everything about him. Well, there's plenty there to know that he has revealed, to know that there's no other alternative And I'm grateful, now I've come to the point where I'm grateful that I don't have God figured out. That he's a lot bigger than my head. Habakkuk's uh, questions reveal that he's he's baffled by God, right? Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? Okay, God says, I'm going to do something. And then he's baffled even more. Well, why are you going to do that? I'm gonna raise up I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna raise up Babylonians. Well, okay. Why why do you do what you do? I'm baffled by this. How are you gonna use evil people? An evil empire. Take us into exile. But let's look at the same circumstance. Consider this, will you? Consider the same circumstances from the perspective that God is not in control. Because that's what I always have to do when dealing with God's suffering. There's things I don't understand, right? But then I look at the alternative. Okay, what if God's not in control here? What if he's not sovereign? Is that a better option? Think about it like this, right? You have the Babylons. They're they're most likely they're they're Kill and conquer. That's their way. So they're eventually going to make their way to Judah by their own accord for no redemptive purpose whatsoever. They're just going to just conquer death, destruction, and then you're going to say and God has no control over that. He's going to say, oh, man, oh, sorry. But there's nothing I can do about it. Is that what you want? Of course, none of us want that, right? We want... We want a God who's able to say that is by my hand and by my hand I will deal with that and in the end because I am sovereign all things are going to work for your your good. Whether we understand it or not that's a much better alternative. Suffering has a way of making us realize right, how little we actually can control in our lives sovereignty by contrast allows us not to need to be in control. You're like, well, you know, I don't I don't know, but God does. Habakkuk, he could not change the future, right? God had laid it out. Here's what's going down. He had no way to stop what was coming. So to suffer well, he he had to let go of his false sense of control. Suffering clarifies who's in control. And it's not us. right? Fortunately, because God is sovereign, he is the one who is in control. So how terrifying would it be to think suffering is beyond God's control? That he had no power over it. What an incredible comfort then it becomes to realize that God is always sovereign. God is always in control. I may not understand everything associated with that, but it's good news. And so he remembers this. He remembers God's sovereignty. Again, verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows. They sped sped at, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations with anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying them bare From thigh to neck you pierced with your own swords the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and surged the mighty waters. So look at what he remembers. First, he remembers that God is sovereign over the cosmos. He's sovereign over the cosmos. He makes the sun and the moon to stand still right recalling joshua chapter 10 when god stilled the sun and the moon at least that's how it appeared right we know that what what happened was is he he kept the earth from rotating and kept at the same time all the people from flying off into space so god stilled the sun and the moon or the earth or however you want to think of that and so we know what happened there but but from Uh, Joshua's perspective, he saw God bring stillness to things that always move. Next, he he remembers that God is sovereign over the nations, he's sovereign over the cosmos. He can can make everything do everything that he wants it to do, but he's sovereign over the nations. He strolled through the earth he threshed the nations kind of like it was a walk through the park and then in verse 13 he shows up to deliver his people and then he mentions the anointed the one who is anointed the anointed one which we know is not just simply a reference to Israel right we know that that is a reference from Je- to Jesus so even from days of old god is sovereignly playing out his story to get us to Jesus even here He's sovereign over all that. And so if God is sovereign over everything, including the trials we are forced to endure, then we also know that we can trust Him with our future. Right? We can trust Him enough to save us, then we can probably trust Him enough to make sure we get home. And so Habakkuk finally cries out in verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. I find strength in my weakness because he is sovereign. It's the sovereignty of God that drives out his fear. Now, again, uh, for many of us, these same truths can confuse because they're difficult uh, especially when you're in the midst of suffering to think, man did God ordained this for me? We think, man if God is sovereign, if God is able to actually stop the, the, the earth from spinning, then maybe He could stop my suffering, right? Because the same thing we go we use it for hope and then we use it and go, well wait a minute. If he's sovereign, then why can't he, or why doesn't he step in here? And it's difficult. We discover that in the scriptures, when we look at the scriptures, that because he is sovereign, that he can, and that he will redeem our pain. But we also discover this, that not only does he redeem it and heal us from it, that he actually is so sovereign that he uses suffering against itself. For example, Satan wants to keep us down, but God keeps using Satan's attacks to make us stronger. Or The greatest example of all is when Jesus died on the cross. Satan is dancing with the light. The Son of God has been killed. And Satan has been all along in that, right? He used Judas to betray him. He used Herod and the Jewish religious leaders to make sure that he was crucified. And yet God takes all of Satan's evil planning and conniving and he turns that into the salvation of millions of souls and the defeat, the ultimate defeat of Satan himself. In the same way that there, there, there is always a victory that comes with Christian suffering. Always. Always. God turns everything on its head for our good. That's Romans 8 28. Right? God sovereignly does what he does, always for our good. God's sovereignty is indeed mysterious, man, especially when it comes to suffering. But what we do know is that his suffering works in such a way that he is ultimately going to win and we are going to win with him. God has defeated Satan. God has defeated the world. He's defeated death. How did he defeat death? By sending his son to die in our place. Jesus killed uh, death by dying. And what that tells us is that God is able to use evil against us for our good, and for our ultimate victory. And so in the meantime, right, we're we're confronted by this hope, this blessed hope that one day everything is going to be made right and we shall conquer. I want you to look again at at Psalm 46 uh, that we looked at earlier. Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3 says this, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar, foam, mountains quake with their surging. What a horrific picture, right? The psalmist is surrounded by chaos. Mountains are falling into the sea. Waters are roaring, foaming. The earth quakes. But God is not sweating bullets. He is our refuge, he says. In the middle of this, he is our refuge. He is our strength. He is not affected by this. And so God says to us in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I want you to notice the verb forms. How can we be still? When are we supposed to be still? Well, now would be good. Be still. Be still. That's present tense. Be still. That means to be calm. Be relaxed. How? Know that I am God. Okay? But not only know now that I am God, but know this, I will be exalted among the nations. In other words, I am going to win. I will be exalted in the earth. I will. He is sovereign, and his sovereignty allows him to tell us what he is going to do, and that is what will happen. And so we go, All right, I know how this thing plays out. We're going to win. He's going to win. And we find a way to suffer well. There's a third thing there's a third thing this one this one's amazing to me resolutely set your will look at verse 16. verse 16 i i heard and my heart pounded my lips quivered at the sound decay crept into my bones my legs trembled yet i wait patiently for the days of calamity to come on the nation Invading us. I love his honesty here, don't you? Right? Habakkuk isn't turned into some kind of super saint. This song isn't him going, I conquer. You know, he's basically coming and going, All right, well, here's the reality. Uh, I'm scared, spitless right now. Uh, my heart's pounding, my lips are quivering at the sound. And, and I have looked at your sovereignty and I have looked at your faithfulness. And that's given me comfort, but I still have this, you know, this fear. And I love that because it's like so my experience. And so his thought of his future, this invasion that's going to happen, has him terrified. He he has bodily reaction to interfere. fear, like the 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 book, the body keeps the score is true of him he's still a human being he still fears he still feels his fears just like we do he's still waking up in the middle of the night when he can't go back to sleep he still loses his appetite just like us but notice what he does to quiet the inner storm he says yet yet here's a defiant yet Yet I will wait patiently. I will be still. I will know that he is God. I will trust him. Do you see him setting his will in place? Right? In spite of how he feels, he goes, yet he, I'm setting myself. I'm going to wait. He's taking control of his own fears rather than allowing his fears to control him. And so he makes this resolution. This is stunning to me. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He imagines the future. He imagines the difficulty of the days that are before him. He is not going to escape them. No one is going to escape them in a fallen world. None of us are. And he is just like many of us who imagine the future through the lens of the worst case scenario. We have the tendency to do that habakkuk imagines a time man where the fig tree the fig tree is not going to bud there's going to be no grapes on the vine there'll be no wine for celebrations there'll be no olive crops there'll be no olive oil there's going to be no food in the fields there's going to be no sheep there's going to be no cattle it means we're not going to have anything to eat we're probably going to starve to death you know what that's a picture of scarcity not having enough, of living life of a void of God's favor and blessing. That's what he pictures. That's what it's going to be like, this exile. The truth of the matter is when you read it, it wasn't near that bad. It was difficult, but that didn't take place. It rarely does. But we imagine the worst. But in the face of even his prospects for worst-case scenarios, he sets his will. Yet, there it is, the defiant yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I'm going to worship. The best worship songs were written out of times of suffering and despair were they not from the old spiritual written old spirituals written by and sung by slaves right to the hymns of Charles Simeon who struggled with, with crippling depression to it is well with my soul written by a man who had lost his entire family at sea and each of them rose up and in their heartache and in their suffering and in their pain they said yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God. In God. If everything in this world, if I lose everything but I have God, He is sufficient, I will rejoice that I have Him instead of allowing all the things that I lose to take my joy from me. And we can do the exact same thing. right? We can we can resolutely set our will even in the midst of the most difficult times. We can do that because of an amazing future that we all have coming. That's all been promised. As long as we're walking in this fallen world, you and me, we are exiles. We are not living our best life now. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. We are foreigners and we are exiles. But our future is secure. Our future is bright. We may encounter some dark times along the way, but our future is fixed. It is set. It is settled. It is secured by faith in Christ. It is he who has done this and made it possible by dying for our sins, by being raised to life again, by ascending to the Father and to come again. And when we trust in Christ, then we can apply the prayer of Habakkuk to our own lives. And we can say, Lord, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I, I am in awe of your deeds, Lord. I'm in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. Do it again. Make them known. And in wrath, remember mercy. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I've heard about you. I've heard who you are. I've heard how you sent your one and only son, the son of God who has come from heaven to rescue sinners like me. I have heard of that fame. And I stand in awe. I stand in awe of your deeds. I I have known what you have done for me. I've heard that and I stand in awe of that. How you died on the cross. How you bore my sins. How you gave me your perfect righteousness, how you live to intercede for me, how you have gone to prepare a place for me, how you are coming back to take me to be where you are. I stand in all of that. Lord, repeat them in our day. Let others hear the good news. Let the whole world hear in our time make them known. Use me to make them known. Use me to speak of your faithfulness to a world desperate for hope. And we praise you and we thank you that because in your wrath you chose to remember mercy. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your your grace, your goodness to us. And Father, yeah, you have promised that in this world we shall have trouble But you also said that we are to take heart because you've overcome the world. So we're able to go through our troubles because you have overcome. And so I pray, Father, that that maybe this this word uh, could be a, a balm of comfort to your people. Father, if any of us are going through our own trials right now, I pray, Lord, that we would recall your faithfulness. That we remember how many times and in how many ways that you showed up in the past. That we might have strength for the future. And God, we recall, we remember that you are a sovereign God. That you are a God who is in control. That God, there is nothing that escapes your eye. There is nothing that we have suffered, Lord, that you have not known about and that you will not ultimately take and use for your glory and our good. That's how sovereign and great you are. Everything that Satan plans, you have a counter plan. His his end is sure. You, you, You master him like a puppet for your purpose. And so God, because of that, we can set our will and say whatever happens, whatever we're going through, instead of looking at that, And turning our our hearts away from God. We will defiantly say yet. No matter what goes down. I will rejoice in the Lord. Help us in Jesus name. Amen.